Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just a warning before we start. This episode deals with descriptions of sexual assault and harassment. Listener discretion is advised. In late 2017, a story broke that changed the world. It's the kind of story that comes along once in a blue moon. The perfect blend of detail, rigorous fact-checking, and timing. The New York Times alleges that Harvey Weinstein is guilty of decades of sexual harassment. new allegations tonight from the New York Times about Harvey Weinstein. Producer Harvey Weinstein has now been accused of sexual harassment by some of Hollywood's biggest stars. But it all started with two journalists. Jody Cantor, investigative reporter. Megan Tuohy, investigative reporter, New York Times. Two journalists and a tweet. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. Before we start, let's get some context. The Harvey Weinstein story didn't come out of nowhere. For months and years, debates had been building about sexual harassment and abuse of women. Indeed, New York Times journalist Megan Tuohy had been covering the beat for a while. In 2016, the year before the Weinstein investigation, I had worked on some of the first stories in which women came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against Trump. It was reporting that came with consequences. It was among the most bruising reporting I've ever done. I had worked very closely with many of those women who went on the record with their allegations against Trump and watched as he then went on the attack. Uh, He called the women liars. Uh, He said that they were too ugly to have been targets of his. Uh, He threatened to sue them. He threatened to sue the New York Times. He threatened to sue me. And when I was interviewing him, seeking his comment, you know, he just completely lashed out at me, screamed at me, called me a disgusting human being. You know, while there were many people who did support those women and believed them when they came forward with their allegations, they also suffered a lot of attacks. Trump was elected and Meghan went on maternity leave, unsure of what she would be working on when she returned. Elsewhere, in the New York Times investigations team, Jody Cantor was facing a new challenge. For years, she'd reported on workers' rights 
and specifically women's rights at companies like Amazon or Starbucks. You know, I had come to believe that gender was kind of a can opener for investigative journalism, that these stories were not only about women's experiences, but because women are often the outsiders at these organizations, if you focused on the women's experiences, you could learn a lot about what was really happening inside. In May 2017, her editor put her onto a new patch. The previous months had seen a slew of allegations around powerful men in the public eye. Allegations of sexual abuse and harassment about Bill Cosby or TV anchor Bill O'Reilly. The Times made a sort of all-around commitment to sexual harassment reporting, and so we decided to look in academia and factories and restaurants and Silicon Valley, etc., etc. But that was a huge patch to cover. So where do you start? Well, for Jody, it was with a tweet that had caught some people's attention a few months earlier. The tweet was from Hollywood actress Rose McGowan, and in just a few characters, it promised a way into the story. The tweet was accompanied with the hashtag WhyWomenDon'tReport and read as follows. Because it has been an open secret in Hollywood slash media, and they shame me while adulating my rapist. Jodie had a sense who the tweet might be about. It tallied with something she'd heard elsewhere. Somebody had given me a tip about Harvey Weinstein and said the story really needs to be done, but we were really starting from nothing. We knew only rumors, had no idea whether they were real or not. So sat at her desk in New York, Jodie stared at her computer screen. She was not a celebrity gossip columnist. She didn't have any connections with anyone in this world. And it's not exactly an easy universe to wander into. I didn't know any actresses. You know, normally when you're trying to get in touch with a famous person, you call their publicist or their agent. But we did not want to do that because with all due respect to those people, they're gatekeepers and we thought they would just shut us down. And a few people that Jodie did manage to talk to didn't exactly fill her with confidence that there was even a story here. Harvey Weinstein, though well known in the industry, wasn't exactly a household name. People had heard of his films and his company, but not that many people would have been able to point him out in the crowd. And Jodie kept hearing the same thing. There were some very condescending Hollywood sources who lectured us, and they, they would say things like, oh, Jodie, the casting couch is just a part of Hollywood, and it's been that way from the beginning. It's a very unfortunate part of our industry, but it's just not changeable. And look, you're never going to get your little story, but if you do, nobody will care. Feeling a bit stuck, Jodie went to her editors. They had an idea. Another reporter, who had faced similar roadblocks early in her reporting. Give Megan a call, they suggested. So Jodie and I didn't really know each other. Um, she had been at the Times for much longer than I had. And she was wondering what to say. You know, when you, as a reporter, when you do get a woman on the phone who you, you suspect has been a victim of sexual harassment or assault, you know, what do you say in those first 30 seconds to try to keep them on the phone? You know, I basically tapped into some of the experiences that I had had in that reporting, which was to say, I can't change what's happened to you in the past. But if we work together and we're able to publish the truth, we might be able to protect other people. We might be able to use your private pain towards some sort of constructive purpose. Megan put a phone down, but couldn't stop thinking about the work Jodie was doing. So when she returned to the office after her maternity leave, she knew exactly what she wanted to do. I quickly ended up becoming her partner on the project. 
But Jodie was still struggling to make any headway in the story. She'd tried reaching out to Rose McGowan, asking her for an off-record chat about her tweet. But the actress had been wary. She didn't trust the New York Times and refused to even get on the phone. So it seemed like a total dead end. If the one actress alluding to the producer's conduct wouldn't even have a conversation, what hope was there? I said to myself, I'm, I'm going to find a way to convince her to speak to me. Rose did get on the phone, and a really important part of the early investigation was that there were a number of actresses, not just Rose, but Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow, who, at a time when nobody else in Hollywood was taking our phone calls and very few people were willing to speak to us, those three, they all gave kind of harrowing accounts of hotel room stories about Weinstein. But there was an added complication. Jodie was starting to talk to more and more people. But she promised each of them confidentiality. So while she knew people were telling the same stories, and she knew each person was incredibly nervous about being the only one to stick their head above the parapet, but she couldn't reassure Gwyneth Paltrow by saying, look, Ashley Judd is saying the same thing, or telling Judd that Rose McGowan had experienced the same thing too. The goal, in a way, was to get everybody to hold hands and jump into the pool at once, and to break the silence and go on the record. But to try to do something like that also could have been very dangerous, not only for the source's protection, but anxiety is contagious and everybody was anxious. And imagine if one woman had panicked and talked everybody else out of the project. So we, we really couldn't risk that. One of the most nervous people they spoke to was Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow had been linked to Weinstein for years. She'd made her big breakthroughs in his movies, including films like Emma and Shakespeare in Love. And the two had regularly been photographed together on red carpets, at award ceremonies and glamorous parties. But away from the camera glare, Paltrow had a much more uncomfortable relationship with the movie mogul. Soon after they'd first met, Weinstein had invited her up to his hotel room. There he suggested they give each other massages. He put his hands on her and suggested they go into the bedroom. Paltrow hastily declined and made an exit. Soon after, she told her then-boyfriend, Brad Pitt, what had happened. Pitt confronted Weinstein at an event soon after, and Weinstein reacted furiously, allegedly telling Paltrow he could ruin her career. Eager to keep him on side, she smoothed things over, but for years she had been troubled by rumours that a producer might have tried the same predatory behaviour with other women. Jodie had managed to get Paltrow on the phone, but she was incredibly nervous. She would only talk on the strict understanding that it was totally off the record. The two started talking, but then one day, things nearly fell to pieces. One Saturday that summer, she left a bunch of panicked texts and calls on my phone. Um, I was swimming in a pond, and I look at my phone, and I'm like, something's wrong. Paltrow was panicking. She was holding a party at her house, and out of nowhere, Weinstein had called asking to come. She was terrified to think he might know that she'd been talking to the New York Times, and she'd locked herself in her bathroom in a panic. A little chill went down both of our spines because we thought, why is he, you know, in essence, inviting himself to this event? And Gwyneth wanted to know what she should do. I felt, you know, it wasn't really my place to tell her, but she decided that she would just let him come because otherwise he would grow suspicious that she was speaking to us, which I think, in fact, he was. The party passed without incident, and a few weeks later, Paltrow agreed to meet Jodie and Megan in person. 
So the reporters drove out to her house in the Hamptons. And it was surreal, you know, it was surreal to enter this world and to hear the story face to face. But I'd say a precept of our work is that, you know, we really treat all of these women alike. For the giant movie stars, for the women few people have ever heard of, the process is really the same. And, you know, Megan was politely asking her to repeat the story because we didn't say this, but we were listening to see whether she told it the same way a second time, which she did. Also, part of our job is to question these women pretty heavily because we want to make sure that everybody is on solid ground. And look, there are no perfect victims. You know, if there's a chink in the story, for example, many women exchanged friendly emails with Harvey Weinstein even after the alleged incident occurred. We don't see that as a reason not to publish the story, but we want to know about it beforehand so we can include it, we can address it, nobody's surprised. So Megan is pressing Gwyneth on, you know, who else she told about what happened right afterwards. And she said, well, you know, I told Brad Pitt, my boyfriend at the time. So Megan, very businesslike, you know, nods and says, okay, you know, just FYI, we're going to have to contact Brad Pitt and see if he can confirm that. And she was like, okay. And it was like, really the same routine you follow with in any other situation of this sort. It wasn't just famous actresses that reporters were chasing up. They also wanted to talk to all the people that had worked with and for Weinstein over the years. And in a sense, that was a much more simple task than trying to find the phone number for an A-list celebrity. They used LinkedIn, for example, and found women that had worked with the producer years ago. It turns out that there was a whole second strand of women beyond the actresses. And I think to this day, this is still not that well understood. Harvey Weinstein allegedly victimized his own employees, these young female assistants. Really, the first case we have is from 1990, and we've documented this up until 2015. One of those women was someone who'd worked for Weinstein's production company Miramax way back in the 1990s. Megan had heard from sources that this woman had been one of the first people to be harassed by the producer, and she wanted to speak to her. I was trying to reach her. She didn't have a big footprint on the internet, so I kept calling her place of work and leaving messages, but I couldn't really explain exactly what, why it was I was calling, but she wasn't calling me back. It was frustrating. Megan didn't want to push too hard, but she also knew from her previous reporting that sometimes these things took tenacity. Eventually, I decided that we had an address for a family member, a home outside of New York City. And so one afternoon, I got in my car and I drove out there with a handwritten note that I intended to drop off with the family member or just slide under the door, explaining exactly who we, Jody and I were and why we were working on this investigation and why I wanted to talk to her. Megan was just walking up to the door to slip the letter inside when it opened. And um, much to my surprise, the woman herself actually answered the door. And she had this look of sort of surprise on her face. And she said, you know, I can't believe you found me. So clearly my messages had been getting through. And then she said, I've been waiting for this knock on my door for 25 years. She didn't want to push her luck. So rather than ask to be let inside, Megan suggested they sit down on the doorstep and talk. Little by little, the woman started to explain how she got a job at Weinstein's production company, her first job out of college. But it was there the sexual abuse had happened. 
But even if she'd wanted to, the woman was in no position to speak publicly about her ordeal. Like many women who came forward with a complaint against him, she had been silenced through a secret settlement. These take place in sexual harassment and sexual assault cases. They are often told by their lawyers that their best course of action is to basically accept a financial payment in exchange for silence. Driving back from the meeting, Megan's head was spinning. In many ways, this was frustrating. She'd essentially tracked down the patient zero, the oldest example of Weinstein's predatory behaviour. And yet this legal settlement, with its gag clause, meant there was no way to report the woman's words. But then there's another way to look at it. Now she knew Weinstein had used a secret settlement to silence one woman. It gave her an idea for where to look next. If you're able to trace the financial payoffs that have been made over the years, it can also help illuminate it. And so over the coming months, we were able to basically confirm that Weinstein had paid as many as 12 secret settlements to women who had come forward uh, with allegations against him, stretching from that very first one in 1990 up through 2015. Meanwhile, miles away, Jody was still trying to find women that would talk on the record. And she had her sights on another former employee of Weinstein, Laura Madden. Laura had been in her early 20s and had grown up in rural Ireland. When a movie started filming near her family home, she got a job wrangling extras, and that led to a job at Miramax in London. But almost immediately, she faced unwanted sexual advances from Harvey Weinstein. Jodie knew she wanted to talk to Laura, and she'd had an initial conversation over the phone. Laura had originally said she would never go on the record, but that's what everybody says in the first phone call. And in those first phone calls, I had just sensed something tenacious in Laura. So, while over in the UK, talking to another of Weinstein's victims, Jodie thought she'd try again. My goal was to explore whether there was ever a way she could consider going on the record. I wanted her to just think about it, but I wanted to make the ask in person. So she called Laura up. And it turns out she was now living in Wales, but about to go on holiday in Cornwall. Jodie didn't think twice. I was like, can I come? To her credit, she did not blow me off completely, which would have been a reasonable thing to do. She said, I can give you an hour or two. So I decided to go to Cornwall. The flights were sold out. It turns out that, unbeknownst to me, there was this massive, like, backpacker music festival that was dominating this town for the weekend. So I took the five-hour train from London, and the train broke down. So then I took a bus, and the bus deposited me in the middle of a muddy field with a bunch of these backpackers, and there was no transportation. So I begged my way onto a bus, and then I took my little wheelie bag, and I wheeled it through Cornwall for a mile or two until I got to Laura and finally sat down face-to-face with her on the coast. The details of Laura's story were horrifying, but sadly, all too like details that other women have provided. In his hotel room, Weinstein had pressured Laura to massage him, and then he asked to massage her. Frozen and scared, Laura found herself trapped. She remembers Weinstein stood over her masturbating. The young woman had no idea what to do. I was lying on the bed and felt terrified and compromised and out of my depth, she said later. Jodie listened carefully, took notes, thanked Laura, and made her way back to the USA. There would be much more to come.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It was September 2017 by now, and the journalists had spent months following leads. But how far had they actually got? In a quiet midtown bar in New York, their investigations editor, Rebecca Corbett, pressed them to lay out what they had so far. Stars were shocking stories, former employees with tales of abuse and harassment. But so far, only one, Laura Madden, who even sounded like she might go on the record. And then there were the leads about the settlements and payouts, but those leads hadn't really materialised. You don't have a publishable story, the editor told them. It was hard not to feel dejected. And yet, walking away from the bar, Jodie had one last ray of hope. She'd heard from a source that there was a man inside the Weinstein Company who was perturbed by Harvey's behaviour and the potential implications for the business. The company's vice president for accounting and financial reporting, Erwin Reiter. Jodie had his number. Taking a deep breath, she gave him a call. The conversation was brief. Writer hung up soon after answering, but not before he'd given her his private email address. Figuring it was a sign he was open to more, she fired off an email. Dear Irwin, thanks for the email address. We're documenting allegations that have to do with a pattern of mistreatment of women over the years. Our reporting is turning up evidence of numerous settlements, I've been told that this is something you may have been concerned about over time. Helping us to get this story right could provide an opportunity to do something about the situation, without anyone else knowing. I'd value the chance to have a confidential conversation with you, and run our information by you to see if it's right. Within hours, writer had replied. A cryptically short email that suggested he respected the work the reporters were doing, but giving no indication of whether he would talk. Jody followed up and eventually the insider agreed to meet. 9.30pm, in a bar in Tribeca. He would ask the questions, he would pay the cheque, and he reserved the right to leave after five minutes. Jody agreed.
Throughout this process, Jodie and Megan had heard how Weinstein's behaviour was an open secret in the industry. They'd spoken to numerous Miramax and Weinstein Company employees who had horrifying tales of harassment and assault. So they knew the story was bigger than just one man. They wanted to understand whether there was a company machine helping to cover this up. Writer seemed like the perfect person to help them comprehend how Harvey had managed to get away with his behaviour for so long. So a few days later, in a dimly lit bar, Jodie spotted a short 50-something man, sat in an armchair, right at the back of the room. It was Ryder. Erwin Ryder was like the deep throat of the investigation. At this point, he was still working for Weinstein. He had been Weinstein's company accountant for 30 years. So, you know, we at first had thought he was like a loyal henchman. We had not realized that, in fact, he was very distressed about this behavior and for some time had, had tried to intervene inside the company and failed. Writer explained that, far from being historical, the abuse and harassment allegations were continuing to this day. For the next two weeks, Jody met the insider, often late at night in that same bar. The accountant swore that each meeting would be his last, but he kept coming back. He wanted to stop Weinstein hurting any more women, he explained. Jody told him she wanted to know if and when the company executives had known of Harvey's behaviour, and Ryter could fill her in. He told her there had been a young executive at the company, a woman called Lauren O'Connor, who had been so distressed by Harvey's behaviour that she had documented her concerns in a memo, which had been circulated to the board of the company. And he had read like a line or two from the memo, but you know, at that point we were beginning to picture the article in our heads and we wanted to be able to write it. So I said, could you read to me from the memo again? And he pulled up the memo on his phone. And then he looked at me and he said, I'm taking a trip to the little boy's room. And he handed me the phone open to the memo. So he was essentially telling me to copy it without saying that explicitly. And, you know, you can't forward it to yourself because then that will leave a digital trail. So I put his phone on my lap. And I took my phone and I screenshotted the memo, but I didn't read it because I didn't want to take the time. I wanted, when he got back from the bathroom, you know, his phone was waiting for him on his chair, you know, carry on, carry on. And then I didn't read it even after he left because I wanted to get it to Megan and Rebecca. I did not want like sole electronic possession. So what actually happened is that I sent it to them from the bathroom of the bar And then I went out and got a taxi, and I think the three of us actually read it at the same time late that September night, and it was an extraordinary reading experience for all of us because Lauren O'Connor was really writing as a witness, as, as Megan explained. And what she was saying circa 2015 matched our reporting so exactly that it was chilling. You know, and also Lauren O'Connor is a great writer. And so the language in the memo just rang out. I mean, she was she was saying things like the balance of power at this company is Harvey Weinstein 10, me zero. And then the other thing that was powerful is that we were like, this memo is a long searing indictment of what's happening at this company. Clearly a whole bunch of people at the company read it. So what happened to it? How was this document erased? It was explosive stuff. Finally, Jodie and Megan were getting what they needed. Documentary evidence of concerns. 
proof that those at the top of the Weinstein Company knew of Harvey's behaviour. And now they had a long timeline showing virtually the same predatory abuses happening again and again. It was time to start writing up. That meant it was time to talk to Harvey. So it's late September now and Jodie and Megan have laid out what they have to their editors, who've told them to start writing. They have a wealth of material. But they've heard that fellow journalist Ronan Farrow is onto the same story, pulling together the evidence for The New Yorker. After so many months of work, they're loathe to watch the story slip through their fingers. So, knowing time is off the essence, the journalists decide they need to lay out their findings to Harvey Weinstein himself, to ask him to talk and address each point on the record. When we decided that we were going to move forward and were preparing to publish, there was debate inside the newsroom over how long we should give him to respond because that really opens up a pretty dangerous period of time because Weinstein, by that point, we knew had engaged in a lot of very, you know tactics to try to evade scrutiny and to cover his tracks. And we had suspected that he had likely retained a private investigator to try to basically try to stop the investigation. And so we knew that that was going to be a very vulnerable time for the people who had participated in our investigation. We knew that Weinstein had a history of other types of, you know, kind of underhanded tactics in terms of intimidation and bullying to try to stop this type of work. So in the end, we decided that we were going to give him 48 hours to respond. And that really set off a crazy roller coaster in which we were basically kind of going toe to toe with Weinstein and his team of high priced lawyers as he was sort of increasingly backed into a corner and trying to fight back. Even the day before the story was published, Weinstein basically barged into the New York Times with some of his high priced lawyers by his side. I ended up taking that meeting because, I, first of all, I wanted to see everything that he was trying to do. I didn't want there to be any blind spots. And then I also wanted to like show him what we were made of. And so there was this 15 minute meeting in a conference room at the New York Times where Harvey Weinstein and his lawyers basically arrived with these folders of information, photographs of some of the women who were going to be going on the record or had made allegations against him, photographed with him and you know sort of smiling and other information from their backgrounds that he thought he could use to smear them. We were obviously sophisticated enough to know that it didn't, that the fact that um, any of these women might have been photographed with him in public settings at some of these big movie premieres or anything after the fact was not an indication that they were not telling the truth. It had the opposite effect. It basically just was more illuminating as to sort of who he was and also the character of the, the attorneys who were by his side. Weinstein denied many of the allegations the journalists put to him as patently false. He and his representatives declined to comment on any of the settlements, including providing information about who paid them. His lawyer did say it was not unusual to enter into settlements to avoid lengthy and costly litigation, adding, it's not evidence of anything. But even as they were talking to Weinstein and his lawyers, even as they were writing up, Jody and Megan were still scrambling to get people to talk on the record. We had had, like, I think this glorious vision in our head of Salma Hayek and Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd and the former assistants like linking arms and marching onto the record together. And that was not going to happen. Everybody 
had said no, and some of them wouldn't even, Angelina Jolie and Salma Hayek wouldn't get on the phone with us at that point. But there was one ray of hope. That involved an emotional call to Laura Madden, the Irish woman who'd been abused by Harvey while working for the London arm of Miramax. I think people still don't understand what a brave thing it was. In retrospect, we can see how Me Too played out and how solid all of the Weinstein material ended up being. But at the time, you know, at the time, this all felt much more tenuous. We did not know whether these women might be attacked or smeared by Weinstein. And also, Laura was doing it at a time of great personal difficulty in her life. She had recently had breast cancer. She had two remaining surgeries that were kind of looming on the horizon. She needed to have a second mastectomy and a reconstructive surgery. And as we got closer to publication, this is a few weeks after the trip to Cornwall, she and I realized with horror that the publication of the story and her breast cancer surgery were going to basically coincide. I felt horrible about it. You know, Megan and I were like, how could we ask somebody to do this? Going on the record is so difficult. But on the other hand, we couldn't lose her because at that point she was the one woman we had on the record. And so right before publication, Laura called her daughters into her kitchen and said, I have something to tell you. Her daughters thought that she wanted to tell them something about the surgery, but instead she told them her Weinstein story for the first time. And they were shocked. They had never considered that something like that could have happened to their mother. But then it was her turn to be shocked because the girls started talking about things that had happened with their friends. Hearing that Weinstein story had opened them up, which was you know, a pre- precursor of what was to happen on a wider level later. So then on Thursday, October 5th, the day the story was published, Megan and I woke up to this email from Laura and she says, I have been through life-changing health issues. I realize that time is limited and that confronting bullies is important. I am happy to go on record. So they had confirmation. Laura was on the record. And then another breakthrough. Jodie had been taking calls for months with actress Ashley Judd. She had called Judd just a day earlier. What I tried to do in that phone call was emphasize how strong the story was and that this was 25 years of allegations and that we had a lot of different kinds of evidence. So she went for a run. She prayed. She's a Christian. 24 hours later, she called me back and the first sentence out of her mouth was, I'm prepared to be a named source in your investigation. I started crying. Without one of the major actresses, the story did feel so incomplete because the fact that Weinstein allegedly menaced women of that kind of power and that kind of status, it's just a really big part of the story. The casting couch is a really big part of the story. I remember saying to her, this means the world to me as a journalist, you know, because I still wanted to sound professional, but what I felt was so much more than that at that moment. What do you say to a woman who is putting her career on the line to go on the record for your story? Finally, they had what they needed. They were working all hours of the day and night, writing and rewriting the draft of the story, adding in sources on the record when they had them, and responses and legal caveats that came in. Leaving their investigations editor, Rebecca Corbett, working long into the night, Jodie and Megan headed home for a well-deserved rest. Rebecca Corbett is our true north. I think 
people have this idea that as a reporter, you write your story and then you hand it to the editor and the editor makes some adjustments and then it goes in the paper. And that was never the case. Part of one of Rebecca's many specialties is kind of investigative design. She wanted to hear about every conversation with every source. But Rebecca's role really came, I think, to a head the night before the story was published. You know, all of us had just been working nonstop. And at a certain point, Megan and I just gave up, you know, went home. It was like midnight or 1 a.m. and we were useless. But Rebecca kept editing all night. You know, it's almost like she was kept keeping a protective vigil over the story. She wanted to examine every single word. Meanwhile, Jodie and Megan were on their way to bed with no idea what was coming. So we shared a taxi back to Brooklyn where we both live. And in that kind of quiet of the cab, we finally turned to each other and said, do you think anybody's going to read this story? Uh, We were so deep in the investigation that we couldn't really see the forest through the trees at that point. We were so focused on nailing the details and making sure that the story was airtight that we weren't spending a lot of time contemplating what the impact would be. On Thursday the 5th of October 2017, at five minutes past two in the afternoon, the story was published with the headline, Harvey Weinstein paid off sexual harassment accusers for decades. The first article revealed a string of allegations and at least eight settlements. It documented Laura Madden's experience and Ashley Judd's. Needless to say, it exploded. The first indicators that something was shifting for us were that our phones, our voicemails, and our email were flooded with women who were coming forward with their own stories of harassment and abuse. I mean, we couldn't keep up with the volume. We had to come up with a triage system at the New York Times, and it really became like a group project across not just the New York Times, but across news, you know, in newsrooms across the United States and ultimately around the world. And within, I think that there was a night, a couple weeks after the story was published when I clicked on my own Facebook page and saw that my own friends and family members and uh, old colleagues were starting to share their stories just directly online with the Me Too hashtag would just brought tears to my eyes. I couldn't believe it. Within days of that first article, Weinstein was fired from his own company. But this story had become something much bigger than just one man. The journalists kept on reporting, and meanwhile, actress Alyssa Milano posted on Twitter, if all the women who have ever been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, then we give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. The hashtag, originally used by activist Tarana Burke as far back as 2005, started trending, with celebrities, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Lawrence and Uma Thurman, signalling their own experiences of harassment. And this is a story about journalism's power, but if we're being honest, it's also a story about its limits because yes, journalism stepped in when other systems failed in this case, but it's not a substitute for other systems in a healthy democracy. And so, you know, we we recognize the limits of what we can do and we're determined to keep on with this work, but but we can't do. You know, we, we absolutely cannot do every story. But that's hard because it means a lot that people come to us and want their stories to be told.
You can read all about Jodie and Megan's groundbreaking reporting in their new book, She Said, published by Penguin. Since their first report, scores of women have made sexual misconduct allegations against Weinstein, and he's recently reached a tentative $25 million settlement with dozens of those women, though he's not admitted any wrongdoing. And he now faces a separate criminal trial on rape and sexual assault charges, which he also denies. The trial continues. That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks so much to Jodie and Megan for talking us through their paradigm-shifting work. We'll have more for you soon. This episode was made possible thanks to support from the Charities Aid Foundation and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And we are so, so grateful to our patron supporters who are helping us make more episodes of the show. If you want to join them, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the tip off. This episode was edited by Chica Ayres and our theme music is by Dice Muse. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.